You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a chicken McGriddles or a McChicken biscuit for just three bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Say It Ain't Contagious, where Lincoln tries to trip up my introduction by making funny faces. This is the podcast where we talk about the intersection of baseball, social justice, and politics. And we have a lot we want to talk about today, some serious issues based on some recent articles that have been in Sports Illustrated and other conversations about mental health in the game. We did want to start it out, though, by talking about what's going on in Oakland and the ownership there in cahoots with Major League Baseball trying to pressure the city into paying for a new stadium again, because there are some people here who have such tremendous expertise on this. I'll throw it to Craig first, actually, to just outline what's going on and why it's a bad thing, and then I'll I'll let Frank (laughs) go off. Well, the the short version is it's hard to do a short version because the Oakland Stadium saga has been going on for at least 20 years now, 25 if you count when the Oakland Raiders returned to Oakland from Los Angeles and the stadium was renovated in a very ugly way. And that's when it started to dawn on everyone as all, all these new stadiums were being built all over the country that the Coliseum was not really fit for baseball and it began a grand odyssey of the A's uh, trying to get a new place, San Jose, Fremont, uh, various places in Oakland, maybe even moving out of town completely. Um, it's been all over the place. But for the last couple of years, it is centered on a site in Howard Terminal in Oakland, which is right on the waterfront, where the city and the team are sort of working towards a new stadium that would be paid for by the team, but some massive infrastructure costs would have to be footed by the city of Oakland. In exchange for that, Oakland wants to be sold, and it has half an interest already, in the current Coliseum site where the stadium sits because they want to redevelop it. And when I say they, I mean the owners of the Oakland days, John Fisher and his business, want to develop it into a mixed-use facility with apartments, condos, businesses, restaurants, and the whole deal. This is a pretty massive financial outlay required from Oakland, even if they're not building a stadium. It's going to still cost around a billion dollars or so. Uh, for infrastructure, land use, all sorts of other things. Uh, This last week, uh, after weeks and weeks and months and months of negotiations and some lawsuits about environmental impacts and all kinds of other things that slow these sorts of projects down, uh, Major League Baseball and the Oakland A's finally decided that they were going to take their case public and threaten the city of Oakland and say that they are now going to consider, or at least they have permission to consider, moving to another city, whether it's Nashville, Las Vegas, Portland, you name it. Uh, It is just another escalation in 20-some years of escalations of the stadium drama in Oakland and with the A's. I say Frank because he actually, you should know, is an expert in the history of and uses of stadiums and arenas in this country. And so I, Frank, tell me what you think about this. This is another, this is the same old story. This is, again, a professional sports franchise and and a league trying to hold up a city. Uh, to make them build uh, extraordinarily uh, costly 
stadium. Uh, and and so the thing that jumped out at me with this announcement this week, and Craig mentioned this, uh, is this again this notion that the current site is not viable. What makes this case interesting is that the Oakland Coliseum, which opened in 1966, is not it, it's old. It, they need a new stadium. I, I, I'm actually this is one of these cases where you could say, okay, fine, yes, this is not like the Rangers uh, moving from the ballpark in Arlington to their Globe Life thing that they play in now. This is a 55 year old facility. Um, and so, you know, the case for a new stadium is, is, is plausible in this case. Uh, what is not plausible is why they have to build it at the Howard Terminal site, right? Uh, when, when, and so when Major League Baseball said this week that, you know, that site, the Coliseum site, not the Coliseum, but the site itself, even though it is really accessible to the BART, it is accessible to freeways. That's the reason why it was built, put there in, 1960, in the 1960s. But to rule it out completely without any real explanation is, is what strikes me about this, right? And so they have gone in all in on this Howard Terminal project because it resembles, again, Craig has mentioned this, these other sort of massive real estate uh, development schemes that we've seen in San Diego and Chicago and other places and, uh, and, 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 and uh, where the Atlanta Braves play now in Cobb County, Georgia. And so it's clearly this is, the, this is the model that they want to impose uh, by any means necessary on Oakland. And that's, that's to me, the, the problem, right? Because that just generates and quadruples, uh, you know, the, the cost of the project, you know, to astronomical levels. And so as somebody who used to see himself as an A's fan, you know, I, you know, I'm like, you know what, Oakland, let them go, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately now the mayor has to deal with the pressure of, you know, having lost, quote unquote, the Raiders to, to Las Vegas, having lost, quote unquote, you know, the Warriors to San Francisco not really a loss or right across the bridge, you know, now she's going to feel pressure to do something for the A's, but it, it seems, it seems absurd that they would commit 88, $885 million to, to this, uh, at least because, you know, the initial, you know, when you look at stadium deals, the, the, the numbers at the beginning always go up. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, in the end, the costs are much higher. And so, it, it, you know, unfortunately, this looks like another case where a public official and public officials are going to be forced to capitulate. And, you know, my view is that they should not, and I mean, just to bring it down to basic level, they are demanding that Oakland give them a billion dollars to stay and not have that billion dollars to deal with other essential services. Of course. Right? Yeah, there's always a question of priorities. It's like, where are you putting your priorities, right? It's not a question of... I mean, Oakland's not uh, New York. Yeah. Where a billion dollars is a big chunk of the exact numbers, but it's a, Oakland has yeah. a much smaller budget. It's a much smaller city than New York or Chicago or Philadelphia. It's a small city. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm out of a couple of minds of this. I mean, if the A's leave, and I grew up going to A's games and they were always my second favorite big league team in the Bay area. Um, and you know, I, but I was there 10, 10 times a year or so for a good 15 years. And you know, the, the Oakland Coliseum was not understood to be a terrible ballpark until the giants moved because you could always play it off of candlestick park, which was even worse, but it is a terrible ballpark. But as Frank points out, the location is great especially for a team that has to draw people from well beyond the city because the city isn't big enough. You need people coming in from other parts of the greater East Bay. You need people coming in from as far away as Sacramento, and you need to make it very accessible for people coming from the city, the city being San Francisco. So the current location actually makes sense for a ballpark. And again, this ballpark, you know, you, you could, it could do it for an upgrade or a new ballpark in that location. But to say this location isn't viable just is, isn't, uh, isn't is nonsensical. It is an irrelevant, a relevant, two relevant pieces of background here, or one information, one background, is that none of these other cities are natural homes for a baseball team, right? So if you put a team in Nashville, Vegas, uh, Portland, you know, you could easily see in three years, 
you know, the team stops being good or the novelty wears off. These are small cities and small markets. The other piece of background is that for, you know, the A's played their first year in Oakland in 68. And for the first at least quarter century that the A's were in Oakland, it was axiomatic in the local media and kind of sports world that the market wasn't big enough for two teams. And the Bay Area has always struggled to sustain two teams. And what happened in the 90s, beginning in the the mid-90s or so, really when when Barry Bonds came over the Giants, just as one point, is that the Giants began to become the marquee franchise in the Bay Area. In the 80s, it was the 49ers, no question. But today, it's, it's not just for baseball, but for all sports. And the A's have been kind of the, the lesser of the two. But it, it's, there are ways to solve this problem. But 800 and change million dollars for what I see as a housing development, like a, a condo project in Oakland, that, that just seems very, very strange. So maybe they, they do end up leaving. And it's, it will not solve any real if, – if, if MLB thinks – that having the A's in Oakland with their struggle for attendance, struggle for revenue is a problem. This problem does not get solved by moving. Some money can be made by some people along the way, but that's it. I, I want to take a small issue with you, Lincoln, and, and I don't disagree with you at all with the notion that if the A's were to move to Nashville or Charlotte or Portland, that they would still struggle with attendance. I, I think what we're seeing and what a lot of the media hasn't picked up on yet and what a lot of baseball fans haven't picked up on yet is Major League Baseball doesn't care. Because the whole point of this 800 and some million dollars and, and the, the site of the Coliseum is to get revenue streams that are independent of baseball. They, they want the, the real estate development money and everything that flows from that to be the main driver, the way it is now with Atlanta, the way it's increasingly in St. Louis, the way it is in Chicago, it will be in San Diego. All of the teams, Colorado, they're San all Francisco. doing this now. San Francisco. So the, the idea is PC. we can move to Nashville. And we can draw the same that we might have drawn in Oakland, but we're going to get a friendly real estate deal there and we're going to make more money. And this is a danger both for cities and for baseball. It's a danger for cities because we shouldn't be in the business of taxpayers paying a billion dollars to a private business for their real estate development. But it's also a danger for baseball because Major League Baseball's vision for the future now are revenue streams that are independent of winning baseball or baseball teams that draw fans. Or fun baseball. They don't care or they'll care, they'll care less. Baseball is going to be a loss leader. Baseball is going to be, uh, at best, an anchor tenant in a giant mall. And, and that's what the real danger here is. It's bad for baseball going forward, and it's bad civic policy. Indeed, seating capacity for this proposed stadium is 35,000. I mean, seating capacities, which we've talked about in these new stadiums, are getting smaller and smaller. I mean, that's like Fenway Park, 35,000 people. So, I mean, that, that just you know echoes the point you're making, Craig. They can make way more money with, with a million and a half fans that are, that are spending giant amounts of money to sit in luxury boxes and, and low seats than they can on two million and a half and, fans buying cheap seats. And there is an argument that in Oakland, which will always be for the foreseeable future, the second team in that market, this isn't the place to run that that particular play. I mean, that's if MLB wants to do it. But it's, it is unfortunate. The A's have drawn well exactly three times in their entire history in Oakland, 89, 90, and 91, roughly, relative to the league. The Canseco-McGuire teams overcame the limits of that market but since then, and before then, Reggie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue. They, they were terrible. Yeah, they they did. did not draw at all. Yeah. And the the several playoff teams that they've had in this century and sort of little bursts as they build up and build down according to the, the Billy Bean model of doing things, they have not drawn well relative to the league either. Although at this stage, it's kind of hard to separate that from the ballpark. But just to, to, 
to echo what Craig said, if attendance was the driver, then they would move. I think it is fair to say that in the sense of pure attendance, this is based on a 50-year roughly experiment or, or over 50 years, it's a failed market if attendance were the driver, but it's not. What is the driver now is essentially, and it's so appropriate that the Rangers are now in a Costco, essentially, in their new ballpark. It was built like a warehouse store because the teams are warehouse stores. As Craig said, they're the anchor tenants. And the entertainment, the product that they're putting on the field is secondary. And at that point, you can put it anywhere. So, I mean, if you if you want to go to, to Costco to continue that an analogy, it doesn't matter whether they're, they're in your town or the town five minutes over. It's all the same thing. Well, that's the model that, that baseball has. Now, what that eventually means for the product on the field, I posed this idea actually to Craig just yesterday because we were talking about this. At some point, you could see these becoming pure real estate companies and the teams get spun off and are just an, another tenant in that development. They're, they're too expensive to be the main drivers. This is actually what happened to the MGM studios, movie studios, when Kirk Kerkorian bought them, he put the brand on hotels. The hotels became more successful than the movie studio. So he spun that off. And the successor company to the movie studios has nothing to do with, with Judy Garland and, and the Wizard of Oz and all that stuff. That's the hotel company. The entertainment aspect of it went away because it's not dependable, right? You can't you cannot have as many fluctuations in your business if all you have to control is keeping the rooms clean and a good chef in the restaurant versus ball clubs where you actually have to spend and put a product on the field and you still might go 75 and 87. Well, so this is amazingly upsetting. And so thank you, Rob Manfred, once again, for setting the tone. But it does provide a very good segue for what we really want to get into today, <laughs> which is the uh, articles that have been coming out lately and, and in general, the issue of mental health and the players in baseball and the ways in which the teams and the league deal with this issue. Uh, and, and I can recommend the, the Verducci piece to you, but this has been an ongoing issue that I, I want to talk about and get your reactions to. I will say that I, I, am, I appreciate every time an athlete does talk about it this way. I was remembering, I don't remember if he was called Ron Artest or Meta World Peace at the time when LA won. And the first thing out of his mouth was, I want to thank my psychiatrist. I could not be here without my psychiatrist. And I almost cried because I just felt like that's so great. Thank you. <laughs> but this, this, these stories are really troubling. One of the things about these stories are that it is a Reminder of the difficulty from the outside of understanding and always knowing that these are human beings we're talking about, right? So, so a baseball player to the average fan is a collection of images, video images, and statistics. And, you know, there is this trope that you hear all the time, particularly from people that don't want players, to, basically don't want players to get paid well. And they'll say things like, what, they're playing a boy's game. And being a Major League Baseball player is nothing like being a child going out and playing. It is a very, I think, psychologically and just emotionally stressful job. Not even, even for the guys who aren't on the fringes worried about being sent down or, you know, or, or staying on the major league roster. And as you read about baseball, you read between the lines, and one, you see the stress. But, it, but, but if you really embrace it, it, it means thinking about and experiencing baseball very differently. And also over the years, you see about how baseball 
handles mental illness. So I'm thinking of, you know, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Rube Waddell in the very early part of the 20th century, who was clearly wrestling with very serious mental illness, and it was always portrayed in the media as this kind of goofy man-child, right? Jimmy Pearsall. Jimmy Pearsall a, a, a few decades later. But also, I don't mean to keep going back to the Giants, but Mike Ivey in, uh, in the mid-1970s was a very fine pro. He couldn't catch, but he was a very good right-handed hitting uh, power hitter. He was poised to follow, take Willie McCovey's place as the first baseman as McCovey. Now, that's not an easy job. And really wrestled with depression and anxiety. I, I'm not diagnosing it, but that's what it seemed like from the outside. And how just wildly unequipped the team was and how the comments from Dave Bristol, who was kind of a dreadful manager anyway, were just so hurtful and insensitive and it's seen as weakness. But here we are 40 years later and, you know, Sonny Gray gets traded to the Yankees, a team playing in a hitter's park with essentially a double A infield defense behind him, pitches poorly and it's, he's weak, he's weak. And, and that's, that, that hasn't changed that much. So we're just kind of beginning, I think, to scratch the surface of, addressing and thinking about people, players, as fully psychologically and emotionally formed people with all the stresses and concerns that everyone else has. There's half a step forward that we've come, and it, but it's evidence of, of why mental health isn't the priority for Major League Baseball. And the example I'll give, I think, is Zach Grinke. Zach Grinke, very promising earlier in his career, he took a year off. He just, he just said, I'm done. I'm not going to play, uh, right as he was becoming a major leaguer. I don't know what the actual story, I think at the time it was referred to as anxiety disorder. There might be some other things. Some people have said a lot of things about Zach Grinke, but in any way, it was, it was something he didn't want to do, or it was too much or not something he you know was into and he stepped away. And, and people generally were sensitive about that, but their sensitivity. And when I say people, I mean, the media handled that better than I thought they would at the time. Fans handled it better than I thought they would at the time, given the, the great history that you just mentioned, Lincoln. Um, but it was, it was contingent. It was contingent on Zach Grinke coming back and winning a Cy Young award and being a very good pitcher, which he did. And he has continued to do. There's a lot more latitude given to star players. And if that's, what's leading you, um, you know, going to the Verducci, uh, article, we're, we're talking with, with relievers who have become extraordinarily fungible in major league baseball. Ryan Buchter is a great example. He's the, the, the guy who led the, the article. Uh, with Verducci, if Ryan Booker had the same issue and said, I'm stepping away, he'd never get a job again in Major League Baseball. And, you know, it, there's there's a different rule for superstars. And, and I go back to Jim Bouton in Ball Four, which even though the book is, you know, half a century old now, it's, you read it, it's just as current as it ever was. It, it's a guy's firsthand telling of his insecurities in a lot of ways. Everybody gets the, the press for the book is, you know, he's telling stories about Mickey Mantle and all that kind of stuff. But the, the real draw of that book is, a guy who is barely hanging on, who once had great promise uh, and his insecurities as he's trying to play a game where showing any weakness is death. It, it reads exactly now the same way it probably read back then. I think the issue is still the same. If you're a big star, Jim Bouton was a 20 game winner in, in 1969 with the pilots. The book never would be written and no one would care. Uh, and he would be fine and he probably would have played forever. But he wasn't, so that, it just wasn't that way. And so when I say baseball's taking a step forward, yeah, if they think you're important enough. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this long history of prejudice and 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 bias uh, and masculinity that you know that prevented players from acknowledging you know the, their emotional mental struggles, right? I mean, so you talk about Pierre Soul, that's Alex Johnson, 
There's Rogelio Roger Murray, who I've talked about, you know, the, the Texas Ranger pitcher from Puerto Rico who literally has a nervous breakdown in the dugout and, uh, in, the, in the clubhouse in 1978. And so, yes, you're seeing the kind of continual biases against, uh, you, know, you know, which is in the society as a whole against mental illness. But then, you know, and there's also the historic pressures that baseball players have faced, right? I mean, certainly that, that, that's not new either. But the thing that's interesting about this piece by Tom Verducci that just came out is, is he links that to the kind of usage of players uh, and the fungibility of, of relief pitchers, but also of all baseball players. He wrote about this in 2019, right? He's got this great stat in that piece. In 2002, at the height of the steroid era, 32 players aged 33 and older started at least 125 games. Only nine such players were given such regular work in the 2019 season, 2019 season, a, a 72% decline in 16 years. He's got a lot of stats like that that show you, right, how, you know, like how the roster has gotten younger uh, and how their, their jobs have gotten super specialized. I mean, you know, and so, the, you know, you see it most clearly with pitching. And so what he calls this kind of gig economy, right? And, of course, you know, all workers in this country are facing these pressures, right? I mean, worse than even, you know, baseball players, absolutely, right? This is about the decline of, of any social safety net in our society as a whole. But what makes the piece interesting is that, you know, he's linking, you know, this kind of history of prejudice and struggles of mental illness. And he's, you know, we should applaud Ryan uh, Bookter for, for coming out about his, his, his struggles. Uh, but, but, but it can't be divorced from the ways in which players are, are, are exploited, essentially, right? And the ways in which they're managed and the ways in which their jobs are they're reduced to an arm or to a bat. And that's how they proceed. And, and I think that, that that dynamic is what's interesting about this time. That's different than earlier periods, I think. Well, it also goes to the way the minor league system works, too, right? And the way in which minor league players are treated in general by baseball and the, the, the low pay, the terrible conditions, the inability to organize all of those issues makes it easier for them to be treated like gig workers, just as, as Raducci said when you're calling it. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a chicken McGriddles or a McChicken biscuit for just three bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Also, baseball culture encourages the phenomenon that I call the angry fan. And we've all encountered this. I remember going to a baseball game once with somebody who later got uh, wrapped up in some kind of criminality in the Trump administration. But uh, Brett Gardner struck out in a key situation. This was at Yankee Stadium. And he screamed at Brett Gardner. And then he like turned to me and, like as if Brett Gardner wasn't trying. And the angry baseball fan is empowered because the angry baseball fan who has his or her own economic struggles is told these guys are being paid, you know, $10 million a year and they still can't throw a strike or whatever it is. And of course, most guys who will appear on a major league roster, who will appear on a major league roster in 2021 aren't making $10 million a year. They're probably not even making $2 million a year. And they probably have a three or four year window in which to make any of that money. And, 
But Lincoln, I mean, sorry to interject, but this is the type of thing also that money, you can't throw money at some of these problems, right? So it doesn't even matter how much. But part of what Frank was saying is that the money pressure exacerbates these problems. And then the fans make it worse because they're told something about the money that isn't true. They see every major leaguer out there as making an enormous amount of money, and therefore they're empowered to yell whatever they want. Now, those two things aren't connected. It doesn't matter how much money someone's making. You shouldn't feel empowered to just scream profanities at them. But that is the environment that's been created. I should just clarify. So obviously someone who makes more money has more access to the kind of treatment and help that they need. And given the healthcare situation in this country, I shouldn't, I didn't mean to imply that it was easy for everyone, <laughs> but that, that this, you know, million, a million dollars would not, let me just be frank, a million dollars would not solve some of my that's problems. That's right. Especially if you could make it for one year and then had no idea what you'd be doing the next 50. Well, that's actually somewhat true, but. And then even the way, again, they, with the pitching example, I mean, I, and, and I'd love others to comment on this. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, the way relief pitches are used now, like, there is no room for error. You coming in to get one person out, and that's it, right? You're supposed to go all out, throw as hard as you can, throw your, your, your 100-mile-per-hour fastball and whatever breaking ball or off-speed pitch you have and get the guy out fast. And if you don't, you're out. I mean, there's just no room for error whatsoever, and even if you do get the guy out, half the time you pitch three days in a row and they're sending you down because they need to free up a roster spot So because they're fungible, which means every pitch team has a 20-man pitching uh, staff. So, yeah. And I think that's what's distinct about, you know, uh, you know I mean, this, this, this is me going to start beating up on advanced analytics, which I know Steve will push back on. That's why I'm saying this. Uh, but, but I think, I mean, that's, that's part of the dynamic. I mean, there's a, there's a different kind of pressure that these athletes are facing now than Goose Gossage in 1978. But when you read about baseball from a different era, what they always said was that we were so worried about losing our jobs, right? So I think that's been around for a while, particularly when the salaries weren't that good, Mm -hmm. right? The Yankees would always say, you know, they kind of counted in the 50s, you know, they would say to the younger players, don't mess with my money, meaning we have to win the World Series. So that economic stress has has always been, I think the difference now is, is, is that rosters are the way the way rosters work there are people moving back and forth to the minors so much more that you know the idea of spending a whole for for anyone but say the top 15 players in any team they're unlikely to spend a whole year in the majors and that salary gap is enormous well they've created a functional taxi squad right is is what it Mm -hmm. is and it's not it's not good for the game on the field i mean the the effect on the players must be horrific and and this is a new thing so we haven't countered with that you know, the, the 1927 Yankees didn't make a single roster move all year. They had great health, and they had a solid team, and they didn't need to do anything. So those guys, as long as they performed, they were there. Now, obviously, the 1927 Yankees are, are kind of an outlier in a lot of ways, but it just shows the way the culture has changed, that most teams did not do midseason call-ups. For, for the most of the 20th century, there was a, a good chunk of time that the, the minors were not used that way, even after Branch Rickey created the farm system, you kind of played the hand that you were dealt and trades were also less frequent. So, I mean, trades, trading deadline trades didn't start happening until the mid twenties. There was no trade deadline. And again, it was considered sort of unsporting to import the other guy's star mid season. This happened in, I believe 22 or 23 that the, uh, the Yankees and the giants made trades to bring in players mid season. And the nearest team that was, behind them protested that this was a wrong thing to do. So things have, have definitely changed. And if you're, you're going to run the game this way, you do have to 
adjust for the the players and the effect on them because it is an added layer that you can go down at any time. And you always see these stories about the players putting a good face on it and saying like, yeah, I'm going down to the alternative training site and I know I got to stay ready and I'll be back soon. And and the manager will say he knows we're going to bring him back shortly, but it still can't feel good. And the the financial impacts can be massive. And I, I just don't think they think in those terms. Like baseball began with this manhood culture, right? It's why every pitcher had to pitch a complete game because you were somehow lacking in, in testosterone if you, you didn't pitch nine innings. Now, of course, you know, Craig has, has his running gag about the solid six. That's a redefinition, right? And it's it's a proper redefinition given current circumstances. But Pete Alexander wouldn't have understood what the hell he was talking about because that was cast as a character issue. And Pete Alexander was was had his own challenges with regards to his mental health. Which well, is, right. Yeah, he self-medicated. Which is, which is described in the in the culture of baseball. It's almost glamorized, right? And I mean, I mean, yeah. and and it's not just I don't want to, it's not just Grover Cleveland Alexander. It's a lot of guys. I was writing about Ruben Mateo today, who was this great prospect with the Rangers at the turn of the century. And if you read the way he was written up in Baseball America and places like that, he was he was kind of the second coming of Clemente. And I realize that many players have been called the second coming of Clemente, and most of them if not all of them are not, but he was a center fielder with a right fielder's arm. He was hitting 330 with power in the minors. He was only 20, 21. And in 2000, in a game in June, just as he was getting established in the major leagues, he was trying to beat out a grounder. You, you may recall this. And he kind of lunged funny at the first base bag. And he suffered an injury that no one in baseball suffers. He snapped his femur, his thigh bone. And I was thinking about this, like how often does that happen in baseball? It's possible that more players have died in plane crashes than have died have have snapped their femur on a play at the plate. I mean, that's something that you would expect would happen if a, a linebacker hit a, a quarterback who had his leg planted or something. But he suffered this catastrophic injury and it completely altered the trajectory of his career. He was it's a cliche, but he literally was never the same again, even though he he stuck around for another five, six years. And the Rangers gave up on him quickly. And this is kind of the point that after that, he was in a wheelchair. Like, I mean, again, you don't see many players get hurt and, and you go in a wheelchair for a hamstring pull. That doesn't happen. And they, there's a, an interview with him that was conducted last year with Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News. And he asked, did, did they offer you psych- psychological help? Because he was deeply depressed after suffering this injury that he understood was going to be career altering. And he said, no, they didn't. And it's just incredible that they didn't make those resources available. And that comes comes up with Buckter also in the in the piece that we've been talking about, that they just don't understand that part of performance is not just seeing to the player's physical well-being, but also to his mental well-being. Well, and their, their idea of uh, providing mental health services to the players seems to be mental strength training so you can stay in the zone or whatever. But I, I just, we don't have to talk about it at length, but I didn't want to completely lose the thread that, Frank started of the role of analytics, because can you imagine the microscopic scrutiny of every little move that you make that can be measured now? But analytics is being misdefined in that sense. Uh, Analytics is a, is a very broad term. I see Frank smiling. It's just information is all it is. Now what you do with it makes it morally good or morally bad information but you can't unknow what you know, 
We also know that that we wear masks during this pandemic because we understand that miasma theory is not correct, right? That there you're not getting the the plague from vapors or bad humors. You're getting it from little viral particles. And okay, so I'm, this- I'm a I spent the early '80s trying to explain to my friends in San Francisco that Daryl Evans was underrated. So I, I have some analytics credentials, and I'm half in your camp here. But this is Taylorism. What we're talking about here, this is high end yes. Taylorism, yeah. and that's, well, that's different. What I'm- than- but right. that's different. That's, yeah. That's and, and and it may be the logical extension of the analytics revolution, but it is I think Tova is right that it creates a new kind of stress for players that yes. is that, that 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 doesn't make things any better. Now but we also can't unknow what we know. Taylorism right. is evil. I, I agree completely that Taylorism is immoral. And for those who don't know, we're referring to to one of the early twentieth century optimizers of industry where you speed up the assembly line till you hit that sweet spot between your workers being as productive as they can be and when they drop dead from exhaustion while going tink on the little component as it goes by on the conveyor belt. I, I do believe that, that that is evil. But again, we can't unknow what we know. Now, what we can do is change the structure of rosters of the rules such that we encourage teams to do what they did when when we were all younger and say, Hey, you have 10 pitchers, use those 10 pitchers in a, in a judicious way and go through the season because endurance is not a bug that we work around in baseball, but it's an attract and it's, it's part of the game. It's an, an attractive part of the game. And the idea, the, the, the idea that goes back to Christy Matthews in a pitching in a pinch, right? That you don't go all out as hard as you can until the manager yanks you, but you marshal your stuff that that is a skill that we can sort for as opposed to one that we evade by having this constant churn of pitchers. And then some of this goes away and it doesn't change the reality of the information that we have now. It just adjusts for it in a different way. But I wonder, and I, I think that I, I, my, my visceral instinct is to agree, but I wonder what in, in 1975 or 85, what about all the players who played in the minor leagues for two or three years and never made it to the majors? What impact did that have on their mental health? That's really unknowable. That's that's the trade-off here, right? Is that mm-hmm. is that there will be fewer players who get even that one shot at the major leagues, more players who will be drafted and spend their time playing in, in the minors and, and never getting their shot. And that and that I mean, I knew we all know people in our lives who played in the minors and never made it to the majors, or I assume many of us do. And there's a stress and a, and a, and a depression around that as well. So, so I'm not sure it's quite that easy. There's a stressor that I, it's a little tangential here, but the the is any excuse I have to rail against the rules, the new rules that came in last year and are still in play this year. The the runner on second in extra innings rule makes it so that a relief pitcher can come into a game, retire the first two batters he faces, and lose the game. You you give up a, a bunt and retire that batter, and then you give up a fly ball, a shallow fly ball, or a somewhat deep fly ball, and retire that batter, and the, the runner who is on second scores, and you've lost. Talk about adding more pressure on your relievers. I didn't think we need to do that. But anyway, that's my shot at that rule today. So to, to, to kind of synergize with our previous topic, a, a friend of mine saw the head, out in the Bay Area saw the headline, MLB to put pressure on the city of Oakland, and he said to me, what are they going to do, put a man on second base? <laughs> That's what they thought they were doing by putting exactly, pressure. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what they thought. Yeah. No, it, it's about the usage of, of, of the players. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I, I think that, but there's just a way in which that dynamic has really changed. I mean, there's just no sense at all of, 
my impression. I, you know, I'm not an insider. I just see it from afar is, you know, how you evaluate players, like, you know, whatever, you know, it's all about what the numbers say. And then that dictates how these people are used. And, 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 and this is the downside of having all that information that usually, and that's not particularly to baseball. Data is always used by capital to exploit labor. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's not, a, and, you know, we're talking about it in the context of, of baseball, but that's, that's a societal thing. And even the, the kind of the surveillance and the pressure that all workers face in our society. I mean, yes, these are more well-compensated people, of course, but that's why this is interesting because, you know, sport provides that magnifier to a bigger dynamic that we see that pervades the entire society, not just, not just sports. Well, especially the way uh, the story he told of the pitcher in the story, the Verducci story, the amount of times he had to move the different teams that he was with, the up and down to the minors over years, he was, I mean, it sounds like, torturous and he was never one of the high paid players um and so it, that also shines a light on i think what is the, the livelihoods of many people who have to jump from job to job never have security don't have the kind of stability that you would need to have for any kind of good mental health uh, and that's you know that that is something that baseball creates is just you know it's it's upsetting and we're about to have a, another angle of this, and it was mentioned in the Verducci story, which is the substance abuse that comes uh, if, you, if you don't have support and you self-medicate and you, you have substance abuse. Uh, in August, uh, Eric Kay, the former Anaheim or Los Angeles Angels employee, is going on trial in Texas for allegedly supplying the opioids that killed Tyler Skaggs. There's more to that trial than just what Eric K. did or did not do in the death of Tyler Skaggs. Uh, there, there's fallout to that about who knew in the Angels organization, who knew in Major League Baseball, how much of an awareness there is of opioid abuse among players. A lot of it, I'm sure, comes from the sort of stressors we're talking about. Baseball is due for a reckoning out of this trial. And, and the, first, the first data point from this is uh, a, a little news item that hardly anybody paid attention to early in this week was Jeff Idelson, the former president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, was reinstalled as the interim Baseball Hall of Fame president. Came out of retirement. He's going to run the Hall of Fame for a few months. Why? Because Tim Mead, the guy who was the president, is stepping down to spend more time with his family. Who is Tim Mead? He was an executive with the Anaheim Angels who, as soon as Tyler Skaggs was, uh, died, uh, was reported to have known all about it, then issued a denial, then it went completely silent. I'm pretty sure without, uh, you know, skirting the, skirting the, the, the laws of uh, defamation here, <laughs> I don't know what Tim Mead knew. I do know that if there was going to be a very well-publicized trial coming up and my name was going to be prominently mentioned in it, that I would probably be pressured by baseball to get out of my job if I were him. I'm thinking that we're going to find through the Eric K. trial that Major League Baseball's substance abuse problem is not only much bigger than we thought it was, but it was it's much better well-known to the highest levels, going back the same way it did with cocaine in the 80s, going back to alcohol's history in Major League Baseball. And you can't deal with substance abuse without dealing with mental health. They go hand in hand. And whether this turns into a good, you know, I, I'm pessimistic. You guys all know that. I'd love to think that this would turn into a good, that Tyler Skagg's death turns into something that actually can be built upon and, and improved. It's also quite possible that things get buried and, and, and we never hear anything about it again. You know, there's, there's something else that, that strikes me is that players who who try to address some of the stresses in what I would consider to be healthy ways are, are, are scorned. That's not okay. So for example, you know, a, it, I remember when Robbie Cano was a free agent 
And we all know about the PED issues he's had since then. But when Robinson Cano was a free agent, he chose to sign a massive contract with the Seattle Mariners. And predictably and nonsensically, he was criticized for that in the New York media. Part of what happens in baseball is that obviously, whether you get a $200 million or a $250 million contract, in terms of your life and your finances, it's, it's the same. But money becomes such a measure of your worth. All of us you know, would like, might probably like to get paid more, right? All of the listeners probably would like to make a few more bucks at work. But none of us have our salary negotiations discussed publicly. None of us know that, you know, I'm paid more than a number or less than another professor for teaching a class at this university. Therefore, I'm a better or worse professor. So, so money becomes a, a measure of something else, which exacerbates the stress. But also, I thought, I thought you know, Cano wanted to play in the Mariners because he didn't want to be in the spotlight. And maybe he thought that the off chance that he might win a World Series wasn't worth the stress of playing in such a high-pressure situation, which is a completely rational and mentally healthy way to, 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 to approach one's work. But if any major league player ever said, you know, I decided to stay uh, with the Kansas City Royals because they're not going anywhere, and I don't really like playing in October anyway, and I can live fine on $15 million a year, they would be chased out of Major League Baseball, right? So this, this culture of, of machismo married to fantasy, right? What is the effect on Yankees fans that the Yankees kind of media world has this completely nonsensical view that they're going to win the World Series every year? It's World Series or bust, which means that every Yankee fan is disappointed at the end of the year, even though going in, they know they're not going to win the World Series anyway. And that 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 sets a, a, a tone in the culture of baseball that is really bad for everyone's mental health. And I would include the fans here, because that's an important part of this. We come to baseball as fans, those of us who are fans of the game, as a way to get a little bit of escape, a little bit of, of happiness in our lives. And if it becomes a source of stress, anger, forcing us to you know, uh, substance, abuse more substances or, or create more problems for ourselves, then, then what is this institution serving? Or who is this institution serving? Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're beating up a Major League Baseball. But, I mean, the pressures, you know, that Major League Baseball players face or, you know, other athletes face, right? Um, but, you know, again, you know, Tova mentioned Meta World Peace. You know, compared to the NBA, there is there has been a bit of a longer history of players talking about, you know, mental health issues. You know, Kevin Love with the with the uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers a couple years back, you know, th- th- there is there's a bit more tolerance uh, or a, a discussion, at least you know, among the players uh, publicly, uh, and they're facing you know big time pressures and they're facing their own struggles against the rationalization of their labor too. I mean, you know, all labor and all these sports becoming more and more rationalized, right? Um, so, but there is something about the way in which again the, the major league baseball, even just on the PR front, 
just doesn't, you know, fails on that front again, just doesn't know how to, how to, how to use these as opportunities to create a conversation. I mean, like, you know, so this piece coming out, you know, that came out from SI does that, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see a, a response yet from, from teams of the league that actually, you know, opens it up and makes it a, a talking point and something that they could, you know, actually kind of, you know, address in some way, shape or form, just from a PR standpoint. But again, it doesn't seem like they're doing that. So do we need that? This is very sort of grandiose and pie in the sky, but in the same way that we, talk about needing to redefine the working conditions for gig workers or Amazon employees. I know this seems counterintuitive because many baseball players make a ton of money and even the major league minimum salary is a great deal for people. But do they, do we need to say that baseball needs more humane conditions and and not just for minor leaguers, but some greater form of self-determination for the players in terms of what they do and where they work and what the conditions are than we presently have. And I realize that the structure of the game has been this way for over a hundred years, but does it need to be rethought? And again, I'm not talking about minor league working conditions now. I know that's a, a whole other issue. I'm talking about the way that players are treated as chattel. I think if we change that, it would also create a better product. That's a lot of the stuff Craig is talking about. This this Taylorism has made it a less appealing product for consumers, and, and by which I mean fans. I just would say there's too much bias against players. Fans are, have been so conditioned to see players in an adversarial manner, unless they're letting their team win or helping their team win. You know that I you know that, that I don't see a whole lot of sympathy you know emanating you know or cultivated by these stories you know from fans. But what the league can do is use it as a way to kind of promote awareness of these of these issues on a societal level, right? I mean, just good old PR stuff would be good, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, I could just see the reactions. I would never read the comment section to that, that Verducci article, but I could just see what people are putting in the thing. He's a well-paid player. He shut the hell up. You know, go, go, go to AA and, and go, goodbye, you know? That's the way in which, you know, fans are socialized. More often than not, so you know it's, it's so yes, uh, players need to be treated more humanely, and yes, you know the, the the league should use this as an opportunity to kind of you know to promote you know greater awareness of the importance of mental health. Uh, and you know what's striking about that Verducci article is that it's not very specific about the help. You know, it's a very general discussion of mental health, and even our conversation. I mean, there's varying degrees of mental and emotional issues, right? I mean, we we know that. So, uh, so again, like just doing the PR stuff would be great just as a start, it seems to me, on that front. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything that could be done. Certainly, you don't go through the fans. You don't make this a, a public thing of, hey, everybody lay off, uh, you know, Ryan Booker. I mean, that, that would be the worst thing you could possibly do. Uh, but internally normalizing it, internally making sure that that every resource is available to players, that they won't be punished. And, you know, it's hard. The culture does, of baseball is not going to change uh, on a dime. But over time, you can get to the point where a player can say, I need help, and it's not going to mean, oh, I, I might get designated for assignment tomorrow. Uh, you do that. You do public outreach. That's, that's how you, you don't fix this, but that's how you improve the conditions. I, I really don't think some sort of top-down, we're no longer going to uh, uh, you know, make guys have to travel more than 2,000 miles to spring training or something. I, I mean, that kind of thing's not going to ever happen. It's not going to work, and it becomes public. And it just becomes a giant mess. And and there are players who think that getting help is a sign of weakness, right? It's not. It, it, there is just like in any workplace, and that that comfort level with mental health expertise with getting help varies within groups and within pe- between people in the, in the United States in general. So that that I'm certain that 
on any given team, there are, are five or six players who would not who who think someone is a there's something wrong with someone who who gets mental health. It is a sign of weakness or something like that. So that's part of the challenge as well. But there, it does seem that that rather than say, "Hey, lay off so and so," the generic mental health awareness. If you're, you know, like like suicide prevention. If you're thinking you should call this hotline, brought to you by MLB. Some, I mean, I'm not writing the ad copy right now, but but something like that, which Frank is touching on, could be very helpful. It would raise not not around specific players or even or even just you know more articles like Verducci's that explore the stress involved in Major League Baseball. Craig, you you've been you have explained in previous podcasts how you know baseball has a way of getting the stories it wants out there, and these could be among those those stories. Which in the long run, we see now more clearly than ever the stress it creates for the players, and it's harder to ignore that. But I wonder whether that stress doesn't permeate the the baseball culture beyond players, which includes you know I keep saying this, but it includes fans, it includes people who watch the game. And and there are baseball fans who, if they knew that MLB says it's okay to get help, maybe I should get help, and that could be very positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to be overly obvious or crass or anything, but, I mean, there's a reason why ALS gets the funding it gets, right? There was a baseball connection of someone who was suffering, Lou Gehrig, suffering from uh, a debilitating disease, and, and I'm not saying use players, but if if baseball is out front and baseball players are out front, talking about something like depression or, or, or anxiety in men or, or something like that, there is a huge sector of the population that will listen to that differently than they will listen to some celebrity or artist or actor or uh, a, a public health official talk about it. There are gains to be made here. God, I hate using the language of, of you know, finance, but there are gains to be made here by, by helping players address mental health issues and then being out front about how you're doing that. And that doesn't typically happen. One of the, the famous examples, I don't think we've mentioned him thus far today, was first baseman Tony Horton with the Cleveland team in the, the 1970s who had an on-field breakdown. The innings would end and he would just stand there. And someone had to come out and lead him off the field. And so what happened? Did he become a spokesperson for emotional struggles, mental illness? No, they just sort of and possibly he did like I'm, I'm not trying to put something on him he's still out there somewhere that he didn't want and, and no one needs to have this foisted on them but he just sort of disappeared and was never around again and when when people contact him he doesn't talk about baseball and if that's what he needed to get past that then then fine I respect it but this article that we, we've been talking about it comes from from that place but it, it needs to be players with perhaps more prominence and a, a more easily demonstrated and therefore identified with series of issues because as someone who just had a personal experience, Tova was talking about this before, it's hard for people who have not gone through this stuff to identify with it and understand it. And I think anyone who has suffered from depression or anxiety has been told by well-meaning people, well, just gut it out. You can get through this by Mm -hmm. lifting your chin and, and having a stiff upper lip and just, you know, manning up and, and it doesn't work that way. It's not about your strength or weakness. It's about brain chemistry. And there are certain things you can do to cope, but it is not, you cannot pull your way through that kind of crisis any more than you can overcome lung cancer by the power of positive thinking. And and so there is sort of an education that has to happen for the public. So I I do want to identify myself with Steve's comments there. That's a hundred percent right. Um, and I also, I was going to say that, uh, I wish our colleague Adrian was here, but 
I'm only imagining as we talk what it's like for baseball players who come from other countries and don't even speak the language and are in a totally different culture and have the same stresses on them that we're talking about for all the other players. That includes all the Dominican players, all the players coming from Asia who have the added pressure of being scolded for not having perfect English and so on. So that's that's going to be even more so. One pool of baseball people that may play an interesting role here is, is retired players or players or former players. Because when you talk to them, it is clear they are wrestling with a lot of issues. These are people who at 35 maybe didn't save as much money as they would have liked and really are looking at 50 years and not knowing what to do. And and all they want is to get a job in the big leagues as a coach. And that's, of course, very difficult, just not enough jobs. And they could be uh, play a role here in, in these are the people who really would benefit from this discussion and are, would not and would help destigmatize it maybe if you knew that this former player or that former player or they were just talking about it more. The other thing, to pick up on Toba's point, you know, and for my money, the, perhaps the most fascinating game that never occurred in, you know, like a World Series or a playoff was the uh, Marischal Roseboro game in 1965 for so many reasons. So many reasons that, that I'm not going to get into them here. But, you know, both Roseboro and Marischal were, in, were functioning in that game in times of great stress because of things that may not have been obvious to the average fan watching, you know, the game of the week, Koufax versus Marischal on television. And those were external stressors, not having to do with baseball. But that does, that is part of this, that if in a workplace, you know, if if I were to go into my work, my workplace is my home and the only person that works with me is my dog. So that's a bad example. But if some of you who work with other people were to go into your workplace and they knew that something dramatic was happening in the country from which you'd immigrated, they might approach you a little differently that day. They might understand that you're under stress, but that has never really entered baseball's calculus. I have to say, though, you know, the, the, your last point, Lincoln's a good one, but what, I just have to call out that uh, and duly note that we at SIAC are proposing solutions for Major League Baseball. We're not just criticizing them, right? We're we're giving them some some ideas uh, that uh, they could take up that you know would you know kind of do some good societal good for change. Well, to bring it full circle, maybe some of the owners, instead of uh, spending a billion dollars and demanding a billion dollars from from cities, could be spending some of those billions on mental health for their players and beyond. Well, the new real estate development next to the Giants ballpark will ho- will house the psychiatry department of UCSF. So there is, is that true? Possible- it is true. I know that because my stepfather is retiring because he doesn't want to slip all the way down. Oh, that's an argument for this for this project. You want to give it a green light then, I guess. No, I am actually was not involved in that decision making. But that is a model, perhaps, to have mental health facilities right next to the stadium for the fans and the players and the staff alike. Yes, sure. Yes, and, and again, I do want to apologize because we are talking about the Giants before we go. I just want to apologize again that it's this late in the season and they're still in first place. <laughs> so are the A's, by the way. Not that I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sporting my green and gold, but they are in first place. You know, this is a great way to enlist fan support, <laughs> you know, right. threatening to leave your city. But whatever, they don't care about that. Okay, well, I think that's uh, the time we have. Um, it's been really interesting, as always. And I'm going to throw it to Steve who always sends us out in fine form. <laughs> no pressure at all. We've come to the end of another episode. Should you have enjoyed the program, and we very much hope you have, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. You can also follow us on Twitter at SIACpod, our acronym, as Lincoln says, SIAC, which sounds like some kind of condition you go to a chiropractor for. Sayak is a town in the Hudson Valley where Andrew Yang went during the <laughs> pandemic. No. Oh.
a lovely resort it is too. You're lost. Your life choices have let you down in a stew. You go to the beach, stare out at the turbulent waters. A bottle floats towards you. You pick it up. There's a message in it. The message says, say it ain't contagious. And now you have your mission, just as we have ours. We will both keep saying, say it ain't contagious. So on behalf of Lincoln, Craig, Frank, Tova, and myself, we will see you next week on Fading Contagious. Thank you so much. Switching to GEICO is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, GEICO makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to GEICO, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just 3 bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. ba ba ba